Good morning. Sabbath blessings to all of you joining us over our uh, church Facebook page and YouTube channel. We welcome you here this Sabbath morning. We're about to get started into a wonderful message this morning that we're looking at the parallels between Christ's uh, crisis that he went through there towards the end of his life here on earth and what the remnant will be going through here in the very near future, we believe by prophecy as it lays it out for us. But before we begin, let's have a word of prayer together. We want to ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts for him today. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and worship thee together as a body in the body of Christ. We pray humbly, Lord, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us this morning. Open our eyes and, and our hearts. May we see the truth, discern it, and uh, consider this truth. May we cultivate, with the Holy Spirit's help, a love for this truth and to share it with all those around. Uh, we pray for those who can be with us today. We ask that you be very near to them, keep them safe, and heal them according to thy will. And Father, we humbly ask that as we claim the blood of Jesus that was shed at Calvary, that you will forgive us our sins. We claim those promises that if we ask, it shall be forgiven. And so we, we thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. Please give us discernment now as we get into your word. Help us to have understanding and to learn from Christ's example always. We pray in the name of Jesus, who's so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, friends, you know, the Bible describes two of the major identifiers and characteristics of the remnant people of God. And some of us, of course, are very familiar with this. Uh, but it, it's describing these people, those who will go through the end uh, time of trouble, right? And we're familiar with Revelation 14, 12. Some, some of us are, some may not, but let's read it. Revelation 14, verse 12 says, Here's the patience of the saints, and speaking of the remnant of God. Here's the patience, the long-suffering, that endurance of, the, of the, the, the saints. Here are they that what? That keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And we're very familiar then with these two major identifiers and characteristics of these last uh, uh, end times people of God. But friends, there is another attribute that precedes these two. And it is actually the prerequisite to these two, if you consider that. And it's found in verse 4 of that same chapter, if you go up before that, describing the last generation, the, the church of God, the, the remnant people of God. There in verse 4 of Revelation 14, says, These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. All through the universe, friends, the remnant go with him. But before they follow him there, they must follow him here. Would you agree with that? Amen? Let me share this with you from uh, the SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 978. It says, We need not wait till we are translated to follow Christ. God's people may do this here below. We shall follow the Lamb of God in the courts above only, she says, if we follow him here. And so all who follow him there will follow him here first. Amen? So we have uh, no opportunity, if you think about it now, we have no opportunity now to follow him there, but we have every opportunity to follow him here, right? Now. 
And so that's what we need to especially study about. Wouldn't you agree with that? And so in our last study, we noted, friends, that of all the events of the Savior's life, the most important to us who live here at the end of time are those uh, spoken of uh, as the closing scenes, the closing scenes of Christ. And in meditating on the Savior's life, we're told to give special attention to those closing scenes. We read about that in Desire of Ages, page 83. tells us that very plainly. Of an hour a day, we should contemplate the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes, because they have to do with us. So what can we learn from those closing scenes as examples and instruction for us who live here at the end of time? And so one great reason why we should be interested in those closing scenes is that we are soon to pass over those experiences, friend. We're soon to share with Jesus in the persecution, to share with him in the trial, in the suffering, in the anguish concerning which he told his disciples. We are soon to pass through the sifting, uh, beloved, that they passed through. And we shall either be like Jesus and come out victorious and triumphant, giving under suffering such abundant evidence of the keeping power of divine love, or else, like the disciples, we shall fail in that crisis hour. Now, that crisis came at the close of Christ's earthly life. Our crisis comes at the close of our experience here in this world at the end of time. In each case, it is the closing crisis, the closing scenes. And that, friends, when you think about what Jesus went through, that was the greatest crisis of eternity. The crisis of the cross. But this crisis, which the remnant people of God are soon to enter into, it too, friends, is a great moment to the universe. And I mentioned this uh, in part one last time we were together. The closing crisis, the scenes that we are to go through as a people of God, concerns not only this world, but all worlds. For here are to be answered forever Satan's charges against God. Here is to be vindicated forever the character of God. And God has chosen his remnant people, his church, to make that demonstration to give the lie to Satan. And in doing it, we shall meet, friends, the opposition that Jesus met. We shall go through the experiences that he went through. So concerning the remnant, friends, it is especially written, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. In part one, we studied the predictions that, that Jesus made of his approaching sufferings and how he warned the disciples of that approaching sifting process that was coming. In Luke chapter 22, verses 21 uh, to 30, excuse me, Luke 22, verses 31 to 32 it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So he was giving a warning here. There was a, a crisis coming. There were closing scenes that were coming upon him that were going to not only sift him, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, Garden of Gethsemane. But we're going to sift the disciples. And what can we learn from that? Because there's a parallel for us today. 
And so the disciples, they approached the crisis hour with the warnings of Jesus in their ears. Now, of course, we can look back now, right? We can look back and see how they reacted. And they had those those warnings of Jesus in their ears, but with supreme self-confidence in their hearts. So it was left with Jesus, you see, to act in harmony with what he knew was true, regardless of the attitudes of the disciples. And that has, friends, great significance for every one of us at this time. We must learn of Christ and how he prepared for the closing scenes, no matter the attitude of others, no matter how close they may be to us, in order for us to be prepared to endure as Jesus did. So let's go to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to look at verses 36 to 46. And this is Jesus here. They're coming to Gethsemane. And it says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, John and James. They were like the inner circle of Christ's friendship and fellowship. It says, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them what? Asleep. They were sleeping. It had been a very long day, hadn't it? I mean, come on, can we not relate? It's been a very long day. They they had prepared for the Passover meal. They they had the Passover meal. They fellowshiped together. They listened to their Savior. They spent time together. They left late. Jesus prayed for them, then he comes to Gethsemane. I mean, they were exhausted. Don't you think Christ was exhausted as well? And so, there in verse 40, he comes to the disciples, he finds them asleep. And he, and he says to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, he says, that ye enter not into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again. And, and it says here, Matthew, for their eyes were heavy. Have you ever gone through that? I know I have. You've been exhausted and you're trying to stay awake and the, you know those eyelids just get really heavy. They just start bouncing. Before you know it, you're like waking up and you're like, how long have I been asleep? Right? And it says, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 44. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then he says, rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And so these verses, when we look at this experience here, 
they described the experience taking place between the hours of 9 o'clock and midnight on Thursday night. And our Lord was crucified about 9 o'clock the next morning. And just previous to going to Gethsemane, if you recall, he, like I mentioned before, he'd eaten the Passover supper. He'd instituted the new covenant with his disciples in the upper room. He'd conversed with them at some length uh, around the table. You know, it was a time, it was to be a time of fellowship. And he took that time. And as they walked along the streets of Jerusalem and, and down across the brook, and as they approached Gethsemane, he saw that beautiful grapevine, which he, he took as the example of himself and his followers, and from it taught those precious lessons found in John chapters 15 and 16. Then kneeling with the little band of disciples, he prayed that wonderful intercessory prayer recorded in John chapter 17. And having committed his church then to the Father, he pressed on into the Garden of Gethsemane to engage in that struggle with the powers of darkness, which, friends, no one but Christ and his Father will ever fully understand. Jesus desired his disciples, you see, to share with him something of that experience so they could be prepared for their own Gethsemane. But through being self-confident on the one hand and, and sleepy on the other, they failed to enter into that experience like he wished. And it's worthy to note that picture of the sleeping disciples there in Gethsemane because it has its counterpart today, friends. It has its counterpart today. <clears throat> Let me share this with you from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 205. It says about this, this incident here, He came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. By these sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church when the day of God's visitation is nigh. It is a time of clouds and thick darkness when to be found asleep is most perilous. So what do the sleeping disciples represent? They represent a sleeping church. Well, if they represent a sleeping church, who does Jesus represent? Right? So do you see, my friends, that God must find some people today who will pray, like Jesus, who will pray while others have heavy eyes and sleep? That's why it's so vital that we study this. Don't you agree? God must find some people today, friends, who will not be spiritually drowsy in the hour of drowsiness, who will press through the darkness, who will learn to pray as Jesus prayed, that they may be prepared to witness as Jesus witnessed and, and endure the closing scenes as he endured his closing scenes. And it was at midnight, that midnight hour, that the mob came for Jesus. But what did they find? The mob found Jesus prepared. They found he was ready for them. 
Right when the clock struck the hour, he said to his disciples there in Matthew 26 or 46, remember he said, rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. So Jesus was not surprised. He knew what was coming and he got ready for when the test came. And that can be our experience, friends. It, in fact, it must be our experience if we are to endure. So on the other hand, what do we have? The disciples, they were taken unawares, weren't they? Although Jesus had specifically told them what was to happen, they were surprised. They were not only surprised, but they were unprepared. And although they desired to give evidence of their loyalty, before the night was over, they all gave evidence of confusion and disloyalty, didn't they? And the difference between the revelation that, that Jesus gave and the exhibition they gave was this. One was praying while the others were sleeping. One believed the prophecies and took action accordingly to be prepared. The other had their own plans and, and thought they were all prepared for any contentions. So into one or the other of those classes, friends, each of us will fall. But I praise God. I praise God that there's still an opportunity for each one of us to change groups if we need to change groups, friends. We can praise God for that. And we can, if we choose, enter in with Jesus. We can go to Gethsemane and we can watch Christ there. So let us look together at the experiences that Jesus went through and see what we can learn about what He went through and learn when to pray and learn how to pray to be prepared for that Babylon mob that will come for us one day, I believe, very, very soon. And so you'll note that, first of all, we look in there at Gethsemane that Jesus prayed three times. And the words are very similar, aren't they? But if you study the divine commentary given us in that, that chapter uh, in the, the book, The Desire of Ages, on, you know, the chapter on Gethsemane, you'll discern that there is a growing crisis as the minutes tick slowly by. And while at the first of Christ's intense prayer, there is a longing in his heart that some, some way may be found that he may not have to drink that cup. He comes out of the awful struggle with only one plea, doesn't he? And that is that the Father's will shall be done. And my dear friends, that is one of the greatest lessons in prayer that you and I can learn. Jesus was the divine Son of God. And there was laid upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane an immense load that will never be laid upon any one of us. If it should be laid upon us, a split second even, it would crush us. Isaiah 53 and verse 6 tells us, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's incredible. That there in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before Jesus ever went to Calvary, he tasted the sufferings of death for each one of us. Incredible thought. Just incredible. 
Sorry. Concerning that part of the Gethsemane experience, even in eternity, we, we won't know very much about it, really. We can't relate. Christ took our place that we might never have to know that awful gulf, that, that uh, uh, black, dark pit of hell into which he went. He was willing to die for eternity so that we may have eternal life. Let that sink in. It started there in Gethsemane. But while in that mysterious blending of divinity and humanity, as Christ took that infinite burden and suffered that infinite anguish, there was in his human heart the longings that would naturally fill our hearts. Why? He was human. There are those who try to teach that Jesus was different than us in some way. And that's the only way he could have overcome. Because he was God. See? And there's no way we can be God, so there's no way we can overcome sin. If that was true, Jesus would have never have prayed that prayer, friends, in Gethsemane. He would have never said to the Father, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That tells you something right there, doesn't it? His human will wanted to shrink away from it, just like ours. He had a longing that some way might be found, that he might not be separated from his father in paying this great debt for sin. And we're told that Jesus didn't shrink from the physical suffering to go to the cross and be nailed there. I mean, well, of course, it, that's a terrible ordeal. I mean, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The, the physical suffering was so small in comparison with the anguish of the hiding of his father's face in that dark hour, that separation is really, that separation is what pierced his soul. That's what broke his heart. Matthew 26 in verse 39, it says that while he was in the garden, he prayed, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's the first petition. But still, even in that beginning prayer, he adds the sweetest submission, friends. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And beloved, let me say to each of you, let me encourage you. It's perfectly proper for you to bring your wants, your desires, your longings, your doubts to God. It's perfectly proper for you to say, Oh Lord, cannot this be done? Cannot that be done? Cannot something else be done? But in introducing any such request, it is also appropriate to say as Jesus did, nevertheless, not as I will, but thou will be done. Unless we begin our prayer in that way, friends, I say that, that we have not yet begun to pray as Jesus prayed. Our attitude is lacking in some way. Our spiritual life needs some more growth. 
And I want you to notice that as Jesus continued, there came to his soul more and more two things. First, if you look at those three petitions, first, the, the, the certain conviction that there was no way for the cup to pass if you and I were to be saved. And with it, the second, the certain decision that the Father's will would be his will and he would drink the cup. So in his closing prayer, he said in Matthew 26, 42, O my Father, this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it. Thy will be done. And so when we enter into that prayer experience with God, whether it be a simple thing we happen to want, or whether it be some great you know, life-shaking uh, uh, experience in the closing scenes, whether the, the one is little or big, we have not prayed through with Jesus until we come to the place where we, we desire, where all we desire and all we choose is the working out of our Heavenly Father's will. So Jesus is there in Gethsemane. You know, history says that the word Gethsemane, and this is, I found this to just to be just like God. The word Gethsemane relates to the olive press that was there in that area. It was a garden, right? The Garden of Gethsemane. And there were a lot of olive trees in that garden. And for years and perhaps ages, those olives had been gathered and put into that press that the oil might flow out. So in that press that night, the heart of Jesus was put under that great pressure of infinity that the oil of love might be pressed out to heal our wounds and nourish our souls, friends. And let me tell you, the remnant are going into pressures that will do for us on our tiny little stage what was done for Him on that infinite stage. How wonderful it is that God permits us to share, friends, with Jesus to some extent the experiences of Gethsemane. So I want you to make note, friends. Note when Jesus went to Gethsemane and why He went to Gethsemane. Now we read in John 13 and verse 1 that He knew that His hour was come. All through His life, you see, Jesus had been guided by the prophecies. He was on time all the time because he was studying the timetable. He wasn't studying his own preferences and he wasn't studying the suggestions of others. And so you'll remember, at, well, at one time his, his older brother suggested that it was time he should go up to Jerusalem. You remember that? And they thought that he needed to see publicity and they were in it for their own selfish motives but he needed more pu publicity and it would be good public relations you see for him to go there but he said to them you see it in john 7 and uh, chapter 7 and verse 8 he says they said go ye up unto this feast i go not up yet unto this feast and what why didn't he go he says for my time is not yet full come Now, on the other hand, when the last Passover that he was uh, to attend came, 
And as he reminded his disciples of what he was he was uh, going up for, some thought to dissuade him. So here he had his brothers trying to get him to go, and then when it was his time, they were trying to keep him from going. But he knew that his hour was come, you see, and with eager steps he pressed toward the place of that sacrifice for us. And so this night, this particular night, he pressed to the place of prayer that he might be ready for that mob when they came to get him. Now let me ask you this question. When Jesus came into Galilee, soon after his baptism, and preached that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, how did he know that? How did he know that? Because he was a Bible student, friends, and had especially studied the prophecies concerning himself. He had been studying the prophecies you find in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. And we are to be diligent prophecy students, aren't we? Just like Jesus. Aren't we to know our present truth? And although he was the divine son of God, friends, in his humanity, we are told that he gained knowledge as we may do. Because he was human, just like us. Every child, you see, may gain knowledge as he did. One of the greatest things I think that we can teach our young people is the history of God's leading in the lives of his people. In the big picture of the great controversy between Christ and Satan, the most important date, what would you say is the most important date in modern history? It's not the discovery of America. I mean, that's a, an important date. It's not the, the independence of the United States. I'm saying in modern history, not 2,000 years ago. Yeah, that's an extreme, extremely important date, she said Calvary. <laughs> the greatest date for God's people since 31 A.D. is October 22, 1844. And to know our place, friends, in prophecy is vital to us as it was vital to Jesus to know his place in fulfilling prophecy. Like I said, it's called present truth. But how did it happen that this particular night, there in Gethsemane, he knew his hour was come? I'll tell you how he knew. Because in Daniel's prophecy there in chapter 9, it had said that the Messiah would be cut off. Let's look at, and I, I encourage you to read verses 24 to 27. I'm not going to take time right now, but let's look at Daniel 9 and verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant. This is speaking of the Messiah. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. You read earlier in the verses before that, it says he will be cut off. Okay. Well, let me ask you, when will the Messiah be cut off and cause the sacrifices and oblations? That's the, the feast days, the different types of meat offerings and offerings, etc., when would he cause those to cease? 
It said there, Daniel 9, in the middle of the prophetical week. Now, a, a prophetical week is seven prophetical days, right? Seven days in a week. In prophecy, a prophetical day is a literal year. So Daniel 9 and verse 27 is talking about seven years, seven literal years, and the Messiah would end, end the need for any more sacrifices, any of those meat offerings and different types of offerings, the feast days, by fulfilling all those and being put to death in the middle of the week or at three and a half years. And those three and a half years of the last week of the prophecy had now come to a close. And so Jesus knew that his time had now come. He was a prophecy student. This is why on the road to Emmaus, he, he started back and, and spoke to them of all of what Moses and the, and the prophets before had, had spoken concerning him. Something else, friends. Jesus also knew that the Passover lamb was slain on the 14th day of Abib. And as the 14th of Abib, which is the first month of the sacred year of the Jewish calendar, as it had arrived, he knew that his hour was come. And before another sun should set, he, as our Passover lamb, would be slain. That's how Jesus knew. My time is at hand. That's how he knew. And so knowing that his hour was come, he took himself to the place of prayer called the Garden of Gethsemane, where the golden oil was pressed out of those olives. I want you to note that nobody drove him there. Nobody pushed him to go. Nobody invited him to go. Nobody came and put his arm around him and said, Jesus, don't you think you'd better spend some special time in prayer? Hadn't we better go and pray together under the olive trees? Nobody said that to him. He said it to himself. He was guided by the Holy Spirit. He was led there. And thank God he knew the time and what to do about it. And I wonder if we know our hour, friends. Sincerely, do we really know our hour? I wonder if we know that the time has come for us to meet the mob very soon. And that the little time that remains between now and the coming of the mob is set aside on heaven's calendar for one purpose. The entering into the Gethsemane experience for us. And I'll tell you, it will accomplish for us what it did for Jesus. God forbid that we should be like those sleeping disciples during their Gethsemane experience. Let me share this with you. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 122. Are we awake to the work that is going on in the heavenly sanctuary? Or are we waiting for some compelling power to come upon the church before we shall arouse? Are we hoping to see the whole church revived? Notice her very next words. That time will never come. Remarkable statement, isn't it? Are we hoping to see the whole church revived? That time will never come. There are persons in the church who are not converted and who will not unite in earnest prevailing prayer. We must enter upon the work individually. We must pray more and talk less. 
So Jesus took himself to prayer. And we are to enter upon this work individually as well. Jesus tried to get his disciples to experience it with him and pray as he went off on his individual self to do it. But they fell asleep. It's an individual work, friends. Notice this, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, page 251. One member working in right lines. How many members? One. (laughs) One member working in right lines will lead other members to unite with him in making intercession for the revelation of the Holy Spirit. There will be no confusion because all will be in harmony with the mind of the Spirit. All will pray understandingly the prayer that Christ taught his servants. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6 and verse 10. So the influence grows, you see, from one spirit-filled person to another. But remember that you individually are invited by Jesus to come with him into the garden for prayer. You must not wait for others to join. If you do, like the disciples, you may sleep on until the master says it's too late to do anything about it now. We must enter upon this work individually, friends, not wait upon others. Now you notice that Jesus, when he prayed, he prayed in agony. Let's go over to Luke. If you recall, Luke was a physician. And so... When he wrote his account, he added some things, some insight that the others didn't have and didn't include. Let's look at Luke 22, verse 44. And being in an agony, it says, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You know, there's a way for that to happen, that the human body can actually do that, that the human body can be placed in in such immense stress that it will actually sweat blood. Now, I don't believe that any of us will go through that, but I can't say 100%. Jesus did. And I don't think that's something that we will really ever fully understand either, even in all eternity. But you notice something that popped into my mind when I was thinking about this and I read about this was what Paul said in Hebrews 12.4. He said, Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. That's an incredible statement too. And like I said, as far as I know, friends, you and I will never be called to go that far in agonizing prayer with blood actually being forced through our, our pores. But I'll tell you that somewhere along the line, for each victorious soul, there is an experience of agonizing prayer. Notice this from the book Early Writings, page 269. And speaking about the remnant of God down there towards the end of time, notice what she says. I saw some with strong faith and agonizing cries pleading with God. Their countenances were pale and marked with deep anxiety 
expressive of their internal struggle. Now, couldn't you just as well have said, I saw Jesus with strong faith and agonizing Christ pleading with his father. Couldn't you say that? His countenance was pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of his internal struggle. You see the parallel, friends? She goes on. She says, Firmness and great earnestness was expressed in their countenances. Large drops of perspiration fell from their foreheads. Put Jesus' name in there. Only it wasn't sweat falling. It was sweat and blood. Now and then their faces would light up with the marks of God's approbation. And again, the same solemn, earnest, anxious look would settle upon them. Now, I don't suppose that very many of us know about that kind of prayer experience. And let me say right here that my greatest desire, friends, is for each of us to find where we are in this prayer experience and learn what to do to go on from where we are that someday, and not too long, we may enter into the final experiences of that intercessory prayer that will prepare us for the visit of the angels in the latter rain. Because we're not going to jump from where we are to this all in one night. But it's going to be step by step and persistent and consistent effort in prayer. I'd say doubtless one of the greatest reasons the disciples failed to enter in that night is that they had never entered in as fully as they could have and should have with Jesus in his prayer experiences before. And Jesus didn't just start to pray that night, did he? No. He'd been praying his whole life, actually. But especially when he started his ministry work. No, this was the close of his prayer experience on earth, not the beginning. And this picture in early writings is not the picture of people beginning to learn how to pray. <laughs> oh, no. Think of it as, think of the people represented here as working on their master's degree in prayer. Long before this, they've gone into the kindergarten, you know, and the elementary school of prayer. Long before this, they've gotten their diploma from eighth grade. I never got a diploma from eighth grade. I know in Adventists, they had a, a graduation for eighth grade. I never did, you know. But yeah, they got a diploma from eighth grade, and they've gone into high school and into college. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Now you graduate from preschool and you get a graduation and a, and a diploma. It's just remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> How we encourage our young people. But I have to ask, friends, when, look, when I look at myself, I want to present that same opportunity to you. Look at yourselves. Where are you in the prayer school of Christ? Remember that sometime before this Gethsemane experience, Jesus was asked by his disciples about prayer. Let's look at Luke 11 and verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And so, I want to spend just a few minutes on how to learn to pray. 
Probably most of you know some of these principles of prayer. Some of you know all of them. I'd be so happy if the time would, you know, would soon come when everybody knows all of them and is putting them all into practice. Amen. Now, these principles that I'm going to share, they don't belong to postgraduate work in the College of Prayer. They belong to the kindergarten of the prayer experience. But like the alphabet, friends, you use these tools all the way through life. But the time to learn them is in the beginning of the prayer experience. So here are a few principles of prayer to get you started. First, and, and as, I, as I lay, I'm just going to lay just a few out here now, and I'll get to some later on too. Uh, as we go on in this series. But as I lay these out, notice how they parallel Christ's experience, especially in Gethsemane. First, have a place to prayer. Have a place to go to to have prayer. place to pray. And you may have more than one. But you never have more than one unless you have one. So be sure you have at least one special place that you can go to to have prayer. It may be, you know, some place, a corner in your bedroom. It may be out in the loft of a barn that you may have. It may be on, out under a tree. It may be any one of a hundred places. Jesus went to any number of places to have prayer. But have a place to pray. You know, one time an elder instructed uh, me to find a place of solitude and make it my go-to place for prayer. And he had told me that he had a place in his garage that he would pray each morning before he went to work. Okay? Yeah, in his garage. He'd leave for work, step out, and he'd have a little season of prayer and get in his vehicle and go to work. That was his, you know, that's what he, he chose to do. The early Advent pioneer William Miller, I think you've all heard of him, he had a peaceful grove not far from his farmhouse that was his place of prayer. In fact, that's where he went to when he realized the Lord was calling him to go around and evangelize all around the, the country. He didn't want to do it. In his humanity, he was like, I don't want to do this. Is there any way I can go without doing this, Lord? And he went out to that grove and he talked to the Lord for a long time. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you pray, enter into your closet. And I want to tell you, that just means a place where you can be alone, if possible, and away from distractions. You know, in his day, the common place uh, was a room on the roof of the home. They had flat roofs, and up there they usually had a room, and that was a place that they could go to that was like their closet. They could get away. And I think that's more than likely what he was referring to when he said that. Let me share this with you from the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 84. Have a place for secret prayer. Jesus had select places for communion with God, and so should we. We need often to retire to some spot, however humble, where we can be alone with God. And I always found, friends, that it's nice to remember that you can whisper to God and he can still hear you. <laughs> you know, secret prayer is to be heard only by the, the prayer hearing God. So have a place to pray, at least one and more if you need it. Jesus was found oftentimes, of course, in nature. And I found praying in nature is a, a spot in, in nature where you just let creation 
noise around you is just is so tranquil and you can have a good conversation with the Lord. Second thing, have a specific time to pray. In the ancient sanctuary service, there were two special hours of prayer. When the morning sacrifice was placed upon the altar and when the evening sacrifice was placed upon the altar. And this was an example, uh, it's an example to us actually, for when to have family prayer. Because those times were for all Israel to come together and pray as a body. And we know that Daniel gave us an example of praying three times a day. In fact, because of his his uh, timetable, <laughs> they wanted to uh, get rid of him, and they threw him in the lion's den, and God saved him because of his relationship with God through his prayers. The psalmist says in Psalm 5 and verse 3, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. First thing in the morning. As soon as my eyes open, friends, I thank God that he's been merciful to me and allowed me another day to live. And some of you have heard me talk about these things before. But when talking about prayer principles, I've told people to set the alarm clock in order to have prayer. And one brother told me that he awakens at 3 o'clock in the morning for prayer because he wanted to be up when it was peaceful before Babylon arose with all its noise pollution. Third, learn to pray aloud. Learn to pray aloud. Psalms 55 and verse 17 says, Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Gospel workers Page 425. She says very nicely. She says, learn to pray aloud where only God can hear you. And I like the way that's worded. We need to learn to do it. And this is a school of prayer. And of course, in a school, I hope we all graduate, friends. I hope we do. And only the graduates of this school are going through to the end, though. So we, we need to be very good students in this school. Amen. And this is one of the early lessons in successful prayer. Learn to pray aloud where only God can hear you. Now, you know, I find when I talk to people and counsel with people who are struggling with problems in their Christian experience, these struggles can be traced to them not knowing what it means to talk to God. They confuse, oftentimes, and I've run into this, they confuse secret prayer and silent prayer. Now, sometimes, you know, and and maybe many of you have had this experience, we may be invited to bow our heads for a moment of silent prayer. And everybody bows their head in silent prayer. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But that isn't what God's talking about when he's talking about secret prayer. When you kneel down to talk with God in secret prayer, open your mouth and talk to him. That's not the time for silent prayer, you see. You don't need to shout Okay, for he's near. Just talk loud enough for him to hear. That's all. Christ Objects Lessons, page 129. Notice this. It says, if we keep the Lord ever before us, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him, we shall have a continual freshness in our religious life. 
Our prayers will take the form of a conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. He will speak his mysteries to us personally. Often there will come to us a sweet, joyful sense of the presence of Jesus. I can attest to that. More and more, actually, in the years that I've been in the school of Christ. And God, friends, God knows what you want without you actually saying the words, okay? He knows what things you have need of before you ask him. Our prayers are not about informing God, okay? God is waiting for us to open the heart heavenward to receive the blessings that he wants to impart. And opening our lips is a great help in opening our heart. Let me tell you, speaking directly to God helps you to feel that you're actually communicating with heaven. And it is a privilege through Jesus to be able to do that. We do not have to go to another human being in order to speak to God. Praise Jesus for that. It makes the experience very real. And there's another reason to pray aloud, and this brings me to another principle. Four, if the mind wanders during prayer, bring it back. <laughs> okay? Now, I'm confident, I'm pretty confident in saying that I'm not the only one that this has happened to, because if I am, then I'm very unique indeed, and I know that I'm not, friends. So you kneel down, you start to pray to God, and soon you find that your mind has gone way off somewhere else. Has that ever happened? Come on, you can be honest. Now there can be several reasons for this, but it's something that can be overcome. I found that by praying aloud that it curbs my mind from, from wandering. It, it curbs that problem. Notice this, Messages to Young People, page 114. She says, if the mind wanders, we must bring it back. By persevering effort, a habit will finally make it easy. Persevering effort. Praying aloud, I found, because I can hear myself, and when we hear, we actually begin to contemplate a little bit more, we pay more attention and contemplate more what we're saying. It keeps my mind from, from taking that walkabout out into the wilderness. Okay? Now, these principles are a start, friends, in the communication school of Christ. And as you spend more and more time learning to converse with Jesus, you'll get closer and closer to him in your thoughts, in your words, and in your deeds. And that's what we all want, isn't it? Amen? You'll learn to be more like him. And grow to have great faith in him as your friend. And I'm so thankful that we have a wonderful teacher who's patient with us, aren't you? And I'm so glad he's given us these, these simple directions. Because I have a simple mind. I'm just a simple man. That's, that's all I am. Just a simple person. So, here are the four things I shared with you about prayer here at this time. First, find a place to pray. Well, how does that parallel with Jesus? Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He found a place to pray. Second, set a time to pray. Jesus knew his time had come, and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. 
we need to set a time to pray. Third, learn to pray aloud where only God can hear you. Jesus prayed aloud to the Father there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And four, if the mind wanders, bring it back. Friends, Jesus had full control of his mind. And we're counseled to have a mind like that of Jesus, meaning that it is possible to have a mind like Jesus and to behave as Jesus. Amen. Now, there are some more principles in the prayer experience, but that's all I'm going to give you at this time because before I close this particular study, I want to share with you the parallel experience of the remnant with the Gethsemane experience of Jesus. And like our Savior, we each will have our own Gethsemane experience before the end. And it's that shaking time, that shaking experience. So I want to go back to the book Early Writings, and I, I quoted the first chapter, uh, or the, excuse me, the first paragraph with you uh, a few moments ago. But I want to go back to the book Early Writings. I want to read from page 270 about this experience. And I think you will see the parallels. Keep in mind, the Jesus and his Gethsemane prayer, that experience, and what we're going to read here in Early Writings, page 270. She says, I saw some with strong faith and agonizing Christ pleading with God. Their countenances were pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of their internal struggle. Firmness and great earnestness was expressed in their countenances. Large drops of perspiration fell from their foreheads. Now and then their faces would light up with the marks of God's approbation. And again, the same solemn, earnest, anxious look would settle upon them. Now, like I said, doesn't that, if you put Jesus' name in there, doesn't that parallel what Jesus was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane? She continues, notice this. Evil angels crowded around. We're told, book Desire of Ages and other places, evil angels were crowding around the Savior while he was in the garden. Evil angels crowded around, pressing darkness upon them to shut out Jesus from their view, that their eyes might be drawn to the darkness that surrounded them, and thus they may be led to distrust God and murmur against him. Same thing was happening to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, friends. All the way up to the cross. She goes on, she says, their only safety was in keeping their eyes directed upward. Jesus kept his eyes on the Father. Angels of God had charge over his people, and as the poisonous atmosphere of evil angels was pressed around these anxious ones, the heavenly angels were continually wafting their wings over them to scatter the thick darkness. Next time we get together, we're going to talk about uh, after Christ's prayer. And, and the blessing of the angel that came to Jesus. But notice, can you see the parallels, friends? As the praying ones continued their earnest cries, at times a ray of light from Jesus came to them to encourage their hearts and light up their countenances. Some, I saw, did not participate in this work of agonizing and pleading. They seemed indifferent and careless. They were not resisting the darkness around them and it shut them in like a thick cloud. Doesn't that sound like the, the disciples there who fell asleep there in the garden? The angels of God left these and went to the aid of the earnest praying ones. I saw angels of God hasten to the assistance of all who were struggling with all their power to resist the evil angels and trying to help themselves by calling upon God with perseverance. 
but his angels left those who made no effort to help themselves, and I lost sight of them. Remember, they came to Jesus and said, We did all these things in your name. And he said, Depart from me, I never knew you. Ye workers of iniquity. I notice what she says. She says, I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. But some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it. And this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. Did they... Israel, did they accept the straight testimony of Jesus or did they rise up against it? Well, friends, they, a mob came and took Jesus, didn't they? She says, I saw that the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. And so, friends, I think you can see the parallel between the Gethsemane experience of Jesus and the experience of the remnant that they will go through before the end. They will each have their own Gethsemane experience. And if they learn the lesson of Jesus... They will be like him and not the sleeping disciples. And in part three, we're going to, we're going to see the, the answer that came as a result of the prayer of Jesus there in, in Gethsemane. That wonderful visit of the angel and what it means down here today for the remnant of God. I hope you'll join, join us for that. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we again thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the example in all things that he is to us. I pray, Father, that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and help us to see these parallels, not just discern them, not just see them, take them to heart and come to you in prayer and be prepared for when the mob comes to take us. We thank you so much for this opportunity. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for hearing our prayers. We say it aloud in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, I want to thank those joining us on Facebook Live, those joining us over YouTube. I pray that God will continue to bless us, uh, bless you and bless us, and uh, join us next time as we look at part three in this series and the parallels between the closing crisis of Christ and the closing scenes for the remnant people of God. Till then, may God go with you.